Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and I have the pleasure of being joined by uh, Tiffany Jones and Mike James from Nessie. And today we're talking about improving literacy for dyslexics. Uh, and this is a topic that is very near and dear to all of our hearts, I believe, uh, seeing as the three of us are dyslexic. Um, so hello, good day. Why don't you each take a moment and tell listeners who you are and why you're so passionate about dyslexia? Okay. The first, well, my my name is Tiffany James. I'm the director of education for Nessie Learning. I am the mother of some dyslexic children, and so um, and I'm dyslexic myself. So my story started like a lot of other mothers of dyslexic children. Um, I was a teacher, and I wanted to find out how to help my own children, and that started me on this journey and retraining as a dyslexia specialist later in my career. And uh, now I get to uh, work at, at Nessie and uh, help children learn to read all over the world. So really blessed by that. This is Mike. Um, yeah, I've, I've got dyslexia and had a very tough time at school. Uh, went through about five different schools before I was finally kicked out. They wouldn't take me back anymore. And I was homeschooled. And my mum taught me in a way I could learn. And that changed my life. Uh, and so I was a few years later, I was able to go back into the school system. And this time I could read and, and write, even though it was still difficult. Um, and I was able to survive the system. And then after that, uh, she started up a dyslexia centre to help um, kids in the city. Uh, well. Those, it grew and grew from just a small room in her home to a whole center of 300 students. Uh, she had about 20 teaching staff, educational psychologists to assess. And uh, after college, I, I went to help her out over the summer, just answering the phone. And I, was, I heard parents and they were crying because they didn't know what to do to help their children. And that struck a nerve with me. And I wanted, I, it reminded me of my time at school. And I decided to, to help her. And so I retrained as a specialist dyslexia teacher. And we, we taught together for 10 years uh, running that center. In the meantime, I realized that the ideas and the techniques that they were using were so good, they needed to be helping more children. And so many children don't have access to an experienced, qualified specialist teacher that uh, we put it all online and made Nessie. And that was over 20 years ago now, and Nessie has grown and grown. I mean, it started out, it was just me in my classroom on a Friday afternoon. And uh, it slowly, we took on more people. Now we've got several offices uh, in the US and in uh, the UK and we have a team of animators and sound people and oh it's become a, a monster itself. <laughs> but the reason it's called Nessie is because it's such a big program. 
because children with dyslexia, they need lots of overlearning, lots of repetition. And to stop that becoming boring, you make it into a game. Everything should be game orientated, but in a strict structure. And um, so it became the resources were huge. And it, that's why it became Nessie. Wonderful. That's amazing. And I think one thing that's important to highlight from both of your stories, and I, and I know my own, is you get that dyslexic child, typically it's a mama bear, uh, at least in the past where, you know, the mom has been at home or had the additional time to spend on it. And that's how a lot of the schools specializing in dyslexia have started over the years. I know in my own story, um, I went to two schools that were just started by dyslexic families and parents realizing that it's better to tutor someone else's child than your own. Uh, and then, you know, my mom became the, the president of the International Dyslexia Association. And the story goes on and on. The big thing to take away is currently and historically, Dyslexics are not getting what they need in the public education system. And we need to recognize that it's not the, fight, uh, the fault of the child or the family. And we need to look at making systemic change. Now, uh, you know, the, the three of us have all been doing great advocacy work over the years. I know, Tiffany, you've written what I need. <laughs> Dyslexias can reach the stars and shine. And then uh, Mike, you wrote Dyslexia Explained. And these are both, you know, really great books that help individuals who aren't familiar with dyslexia understand what it is, what it means, and recognizing that we can do more to make these individuals shine. And right now we're recording this in the month of October, which is Dyslexia or Learning Disabilities Awareness Month. And we really need to highlight how these children, these adults, these teens have the right to read. And this podcast was started as a response to the Ontario Human Rights Commission's Right to Read Public Inquiry. And it's kind of grown from there. So we need to make sure that these individuals have the support that they need and recognize that through the research that has been done, the billions of dollars that has been spent on learning how the brain learns to read, there's actually a lot that we can do early on. So based on your experiences with dyslexia, what is the best way that you feel, you know, through all the stories that you hear from parents, teachers, educators, and individuals, what has been your experience of the best way to get the best outcome for these kids so that they can reach the stars and shine? Early. I mean, we need to, we, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it has to be er, early. And so often we see globally that it, it really depends on where you are in the world. There are lots of different systems doing lots of different things, but um, 
we, we see kids that are um, potentially dyslexic, probably dyslexic, showing the uh, showing the signs early on, and they're just left to wait a uh, wait to fail. They they're just they're told, oh well, they'll grow out of it. They'll you know it it will be something that will just click for them later on. And we know that isn't the case. And we know that early intervention. Uh, the right kind of early intervention changes outcomes for most children, and we're leaving the, we're we're leaving them behind. And a lot of times, what I've been hearing is there's a lot of <clears throat> reliance on assistive technology. Now, I'm all about assistive technology. I I use it myself. It is you. I I recommend it to families, but I don't want it to be used as an excuse not to teach the children to read, which is what I see happening. They're not even being given the opportunity to learn to read. And, and they're just saying, oh, well, it's okay. We can just give them a reading pen. We can give them um, you know, some, some, something to, to read and spell for them. They don't need to learn to read. And that's a real missed opportunity in, in my mind and, and in my opinion. I also see that there's quite a lot of um, economic reasons for this happening. And, one of you know we we see families that that have the means to, for private tutors or to send them to a dyslexia school and those kids are getting to learn to read but children that don't have that advantage that economic advantage are being left left to fail and or or just saying oh it's okay we'll give them we'll give them some assistive technology and then they don't even need to learn so it's all right so that we have a real passion mike and i both for intervening early yeah, I just want to touch on that assistive technology piece because that is huge. And yes, assistive technology is amazing. It works great. It helps bring down barriers. It allows students when their peers are reading silently in the classroom to listen to a an audiobook or to ear read at a level of their comprehension, building mm -hmm. up their background knowledge and their vocabulary, that if they are reading books that are at their reading level, they'd miss. And it helps save some of the embarrassment of looking, look, I'm still in a basic decodable and you guys are all in chapter books several grades ahead of me. Absolutely. Um, recognizing that, you know, there's some children that walk into their classroom and they can't read a single book that is available. And we need to put the onus on educators saying that, first of all, that's not fair. That's not universal design for learning. And you're doing significant damage to these children, their, their psychological well-being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking from personal experience, that embarrassment never goes away. Even I remember walking across the stage for um, my PhD and being like, you know what? I made it. It doesn't matter. But I'm still haunted by what happened in my past. Yeah. And it, it's brought up again as a parent of dyslexics. Yeah. Um, recognizing that it's still happening and seeing how quickly schools push assistive technology which is yeah. great i am not talking assistive technology it opens the doors but it also shuts them at the same time if yes, we it as 
here's the assistive technology, use it. We need to say, okay, this is what's going to help you keep up, but we're still going to give you the work that you need to succeed and do well. And the thing that we need to highlight is that assistive technology is all fine and good while students are in schools and the schools are responsible for providing them with it. But the day they leave school, the onus is on them. Now, everywhere I've checked, it's very expensive to have this assistive technology and the accessibility to use it, and, you know, the, the Wi-Fi connections or the data plans. And that to me, that's not an acceptable alternative unless the schools are willing or the government is willing to pay for those services for the rest of the individual's life. Um, I, I agree with, with everything that you've just said. Yes, I completely agree and, and I'm very passionate about this point because I think we are taking opportunity because, because most of those kids, had we got in there and really given them what they needed when they were four, five, six, seven years old, most of them would not need to rely so completely on assistive technology. Assistive technology is, is helpful. That's what it does, is it assists, but they wouldn't have to rely on it because they would have the basic skills necessary to read, write, and 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 spell for them themselves. For sure. And I like to um associate bring up what the case would be for a different individual with a different disability, right? So if we're looking with someone who has cerebral palsy or um, a muscular motor issue or who is blind, uh, we make sure that they get as much possible support as early as possible to do the best that they can, whether it is working with an occupational therapist or a physical therapist to improve their ability. If we have a child that struggles to learn those basic biologically primary skills, we make sure, or in most first world places, that they have as much support as they need to succeed. Whereas with something like dyslexia or a specific learning disorder, whether it's in reading, writing, or math, we're not giving the children the same advantage from the beginning. You know, as a parent of children that are, you know, in that early years setting and with my background, I've been able to pick out several kids. I'm like, yeah, you need to go to an SLP. You need this. You need that. And recognizing that not everybody has my experience or background or yours either, but knowing that we could put someone in public health to do this would make things so much better. Yeah, I agree with you. I think fundamentally the problem lies with how teachers are trained. Mm. I think that failure in, I've met so many teachers who once they, they are shown the research and they, they're, they're shown the, the, the rules of, of English and the approach that's needed to help children with dyslexia, they're, they're surprised. They, well, why, they say, well, why wasn't I taught this uh, when I was studying? Why, why don't I know about this? And that was, that's a failure that has, has been worldwide. 
And I think uh, it, would, it would change completely the outcome for children with dyslexia with a few simple things that were changed. All teachers need to be trained to understand how to identify and how to support children with dyslexia. All children need to be screened at an early age, um, as soon as they start school, probably in, I don't know, 12 weeks after they start, something like that. And that screener needs to be just very, very rapid and identify those children who are at risk. And then all those children need to be put on a science of reading based, structured, individualized program, because we know that all children learn at a different pace. And some children find reading and spelling easy. So they, they can also uh, follow this approach and they will get to the finish line first. Okay, children with dyslexia is gonna be harder for them, but they might be really good at something else. However, they can learn, that's what they need to understand. And by failing to give teachers the tools they need and the training they need to help these children, the children are failing. And that doesn't need to happen. And it, it's just happening time over time over time. The same story, the thing that happened to Tiffany and I and you is still happening to children today. And those children are being scarred. They're being damaged by their school experience. And teachers don't want that to happen. Teachers want to help the children, but they're just not aware of what it is they need to do. So, yeah, following um, even just some some basic things like we, we have a dyslexia training course that we give away for free during um, Dyslexia Awareness Month. And just teachers that go through that, they'll immediately have a better understanding of how to support children with dyslexia. Um, and, and maybe then it kind of opens their mind to start seeking other information, yeah. learning. But every school should have at least one, at least one specialist teacher who is experienced, who is qualified, that can train the other teachers as well and help give some individual support to those, those students that need it. And then if you can, well, and you can use technology, <coughs> excuse me, that's like, like Nessie or something else that um, helps children on an individualized basis. Excuse me, let me drink. <laughs> Definitely. And I'm glad you brought up the teacher education component of this, because again, globally, we're seeing this severely neglected. When we look at the incidence of dyslexia, we're seeing estimates from 10 to 20 percent of the population. Now, this means that every year, unless you are going to be teaching at a school that has entrance exams and screens these students out, you were gonna have a student in your classroom with dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia. So our teacher education programs need to address this from the start. Having teachers understand more than reading a, a silly um, piece of paper that has you know, a dyslexia simulation. I remember yeah. in my teacher education program, they handed it out in our uh, special education class and <laughs> they gave it to me and I read it perfectly and everybody else read theirs perfectly and the people that were doing the demonstrations like well you know there's one that's supposed to be hard to read I'm like yeah you gave it to the dyslexic <laughs> that's not going to help you do the demonstration yeah. but 
recognizing that these best practices, this structured literacy or instruction based on the science of reading, whatever you want to use, science-informed literacy instruction is going to benefit every student in the class, whether it's the student that's going to get to the finish line first or mm -hmm. the one that's going to struggle to get there. And more importantly, or equally as importantly, it's going to help your English language learners. So recognizing the global society that we have and understanding that you're going to have students in your class that English is not their first language. And while they may not have dyslexia, these strategies while learning a second language, especially when we catch it early and say if it's a student in kindergarten who's just starting to learn English and their brain still has the ability to recognize new phonemes that are not native to their language, this practice is going to help support them to succeed. Another thing that I, I think is worth mentioning, yes, there are those like ourselves that are dyslexics and have that passion to do more, but the vast majority of individuals who enter teacher's college or a professional certification program are individuals who hit that finish line first. Mm. They don't know, or they don't remember how they learn to read. They just remember reading and that difficulty of saying well just because that's just how you do it that's how we fell into this whole language balance literacy thing and just because you are you're able to do it doesn't mean you're an expert in understanding how it's done mm -hmm. you know if we, if we look at other professions or other skills Yes, you may be able to swim, but it doesn't mean that you're an expert in swimming and can teach everybody all the strokes that they need to succeed, especially when we're looking at biologically secondary processes. And what I mean by that is biologically primary processes are ones that the brain is pre-wired to develop, speaking, talking, walking, moving understanding text but something as difficult as reading mathematics writing is biologically secondary the human brain has the ability to develop these skills but it doesn't happen without external input yes and recognizing that we need to provide the support to make sure the brain is in a position to develop these skills because we are performing that brain surgery, teaching the brain to rewire itself, which it has the ability to do to perform these tasks. Now, that's where we need to make sure that teachers have the understanding of the phonological awareness, of the phonemic awareness, of the morphology, Yes, it may be something that they were even aware of going through their education when they were young, but by the time they're at the age to teach, they'll probably forget. I know I can't remember all the activities that I did in kindergarten, grade one and grade two, grade three, or, you know, in those primary years of school. I can't tell you every lesson that we did. I can't tell you what, how it was taught to me. I just know it didn't work. Yeah. I think it's important to, to understand that we're talking about a phonics-based approach. 
for for early early age children and that this approach sometimes fails because teachers introduce it too rapidly and children all learn at a slightly different pace so once teachers have been trained to understand the most effective ways to, to teach children using a phonic based system combined with a developing phonological awareness skills and phonemic awareness, then the, but that also needs to be graduated so that the children that are going to take longer can spend longer. So that way they succeed. And all the research shows that early, early intervention, right at the beginning, as soon as a child starts finding things difficult, if they can get that extra intensive support, get more time on something, so then the outcome over their whole school changes. So this, this is really, really important. And the thing that would transform everything is not delaying this, this support at a very early age. I think Mike mentioned that because in, in, in the UK, there's mandated, there's a mandated phonics check. And as an American living in Britain, um, I was really surprised that I kept getting all of this feedback through our social media with people saying, well, my child's dyslexic, so phonics doesn't work for him or phonics doesn't work for her. And I kept hearing it over and over again. And it still is kind of a pervasive belief system that phonics doesn't work. So what, what, what seems to be happening is so that the phonics check is there and that's great. And they're teaching phonics to four and five-year-olds, which is wonderful but I think they're getting tripped up when the child doesn't pass the phonics check. Um, there, something is happening at that point and they're not really taking it further. One thing I have noticed is they were using in some schools flashcards of the nonsense words that will be on the test to I help start teaching to the, the test. child pass the test. Uh, with, so they have clearly no understanding of why nonsense words are, are used as part of the assessment. They, they obviously don't understand if they're flashing up the cards and trying to get them to memorize what that looks like so that they'll pass it. But And then the kids still can't read. Yeah, but the, problem, so, the problem is the teachers are, is the teachers don't are understand. assessed on, uh, are, are rated. That's on true. How many of, how many of them pass the, the phonics So of course yeah. they're, they're teaching to the test. Yeah. But instead, if the test was just used as a way of seeing where the student needs help then yes. it would be fine right but it's because they're rating the teachers that way but it's not just not just that so when you were teaching in your school in texas you ran a three-year study of students that were using a paper-based phonics system where it was whole class against uh, a technology-based uh, system which happened to be nessie uh, which was individualized mm -hmm. And the results were incredible. Incred so the individualized approach, they all made incredible progress, but the whole class one, they, they were averted. No, they actually regressed a bit, yeah. that, 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 which, was, which was really surprising to see. And, and really experienced teachers uh, in a, in a, a well-known uh, phonics program that I don't have any problem with. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a you know, good, good um, uh, way to teach phonics but yes where that one was breaking down is obviously they began at page one and ended at page 212 and every single child was meant to stay on the same pace and 
early on, you know, kids are are splitting splitting into um, groups, and some of them are mastering this quickly, and some are mastering it slowly, and some need more work here, and others are ready to go on. And by holding everyone to that same pace, um, you you got a, a few kids in the middle that were getting just what they need, and you had kids that were ready to move on to to complex uh, text not game, not being allowed to do that and then this the little dyslexic kids on this end not getting the, the what they needed they hadn't mastered the uh, the concepts before they moved on to the next thing so yes the but individualized if, approach is important so it needs if a to be student comes to our teaching center for instance they will be put on an individualized program where the teacher looks at what targets exactly what they need and then gives them intensive support around those areas and that's that's the thing that works for children they'll they'll all learn they'll all get there but they need intensive individualized support and that is pretty much impossible to give in a class unless you have technology like a computer program like Nessie or you have a specialist within the school that is able to withdraw and help them and that's really what's missing an, an understanding of how to help these children and having the resources there within the school. And like I said, it is a hidden disability. And I think all children with disabilities are probably not served as adequately as they should be. But because dyslexia isn't a visible difficulty, then these children are being left to fail. Definitely, and there's a couple of things that I think are important to address there. One is the, the phonics isn't working argument. Now, <laughs> there are great phonics programs and they're not so great phonics programs. So we need to recognize all phonics programs are not created equal and we need to teach to mastery yeah. in a systematic explicit format so that mm -hmm. if a student misses Monday because they were sick, they still understand Monday's lesson. Yes. We need to build in the cumulative review and practice seeing yeah. these phonics occur in different opportunities. And that's where things like decodable text come in handy because we're asking the student to read the books that they have the skills to read. As they progress at whatever rate, we will provide them with appropriately um, skilled text. And I don't want to say leveled text because yeah, that, that goes into a whole other argument. Yeah. But understanding that with this, we are going to get 97% yeah. kids reading or above. Now, I do want to take a moment to mention those minimal percentages. Now these are individuals. There are some that will not be able to read because they do not have the cognitive capacity to read. If yeah. an individual cannot can comprehend spoken language at an adequate level, then they cannot read. That should be a logical argument. Now this does not mean if an individual is non-speaking that they don't understand or comprehend the language and that a structured literacy approach would not help them. There are several non-speaking autistic individuals who can read and communicate well. They would have learned better with a structured literacy approach because then they wouldn't have had to 
grasp all these rules based on the flashcard drilling that they had. There are also individuals with severe cognitive impairments uh, that at one point would have been called the R word, right? right? And they don't have the cognitive capacity or the working memory to hold the information in their minds yeah. to blend or to identify the phonics, the, the grapheme phonemes that they're seeing in the word and blend those together. Those are the only individuals that should be taught to read the word as a whole word so that they yeah. do develop some reading vocabulary. Now, these are not the dyslexic students. These are not the students that you're going to see in your classroom every day. There's are, a very small percentage you're talking about as exactly. well. Very... These are students that teachers will very likely go through their entire career never teaching because it is such that small percentage of the population. And just as in you know, in school, you don't learn, or your teacher's college, you don't learn about the students with subintendental heterotopia because it is an extremely rare condition. And if you come across it, go to the parent. They'll tell you exactly what it is and what you need to do for this child versus something so common as dyslexia or ADHD, some combination of that. You're going to see it in their classroom, just like autism, you're going to see in your classroom pretty much on a yearly basis. And you need to have the skills to support these students every year in your classroom. The skills that you learn to support these students aren't going to hurt anyone in the class. And they're gonna allow those students to excel. And recognizing that a systematic explicit phonics program doesn't mean you have to exclude the incidental phonics teaching and morphology teaching that's going to help the other students within the classroom. And that's where it is highly beneficial to have external support, especially for those beginning teachers that haven't developed the fluency or the ability to use a multi-tiered system of support independently on their own. And it can be very difficult year to year, depending on your classroom composition, to do so. I, you earlier you mentioned balanced literacy, and I just wanted to say that, but for students with dyslexia, that that will not help them. It's a smattering of phonics uh, with combined with the existing whole language approach to teaching, and that's not going to help children with dyslexia because they they need a far more intensive, structured approach. Basically, the Olden Gillingham principles. Um, you won't go wrong if you can if you follow it. And recognizing some of the strategies uh, that we see in balanced literacy, such as the three queuing, looking at pictures and context and meaning and what you think would go, these are strategies. And if we look at the fMRI, the functional magnetic resonance imaging studies of poor readers and dyslexic readers. These are skills they already try to employ to try and yeah. fix their way through. We don't need to teach children these skills. To do that, no. <laughs> uh, it's something they'll develop on their own and they're ineffective strategies as soon as the pictures go away, right? Yeah. And we have new vocabulary being introduced. You can't guess how 
to read a word if you've never heard it before, right? And as we progress to more difficult texts and expect children to do academic reading, that is where their vocabulary explodes and we don't have the time to explicitly teach them every single word they're gonna come across. They need to have the skills to decode the word, recognize what it says, add it to their vocabulary by learning the meaning of the word based on what they are reading. They cannot then guess what it says when they don't have all the other pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. I would go further and say that a whole language approach discriminates against children with dyslexia. Definitely. Because they're, they're, they're never going to succeed that way. It just, it's ineffective for, for the children with dyslexia. And whereas if you use um, a science-based approach to teaching reading, all children will develop. So why isn't it being followed? It's, it does, it's, it's bizarre. I, I, cannot, I cannot understand it. The science is there, but it's not being followed. And I, you know, I think at least what I believe, and I've spoken to others that feel the same way, I, you know, a lot of the argument that we have or that I've heard is about teacher autonomy and, you know, the ability for them to choose what they're using in their classroom. But as a dyslexic, as a parent of a dyslexic, you know, I've worn many hats as a dyslexic. I don't need to list them all. But I believe that we need to take care of the young child, the individual that we are teaching, their social, emotional well-being more than we need to do for the professional that is teaching them. They mm. should not have the professional autonomy to choose whether the students in their classroom learn to read because they feel uncomfortable learning about best practices for teaching reading as informed by the billions of dollars that have been spent on reading research of the tens of thousands of studies that have been done and concluded through meta-analysis, multiple meta-analysis, using different keywords, looking at different things, looking across disciplines, not just the teacher education discipline, and come to a consensus of what we need. I was very fortunate to listen to a talk by uh, Dr. Stephen Dykstra last week, and he, he had this bullseye target on his slides with you know the bullseye being red. And he said, you know what? Everybody needs to know the bullseye. This is the science of reading. And this is structured language and literacy. This is what's going to get the vast majority. We're talking 95, 97% of students to learn how to read. Every teacher needs to have that skill set. And when they come across a student that isn't making the same gains and success, that's where they need to go to the outer layers of the target. And that's where additional knowledge comes in. But everybody needs that base knowledge in the target to have it so we can get the success at a rate that is going to do so much better for society, right? It's not just teaching children to read. It's teaching individuals to be functional members in society so they don't misread information, so they are informed in their voting, 
so they have the ability to perform the tasks that they need for meaningful employment. With this technological world, we're seeing the unskilled laborer jobs significantly decrease. So when we are producing a large number of individuals who are not even functionally literate, we are setting up the system for failure and yeah. huge costs to serve those individuals. Yes. It also affects self-esteem, um, confidence. And I mean, as all three of us have mentioned, we were probably scarred by our school experiences emotionally. And that's not the outcome that teachers want for their children, but it can be a difficult, a difficult pill to swallow to think that you've been teaching for many years in the wrong way and leaving children with dyslexia yeah, behind. It is difficult for teachers to accept, but I know that the best teachers are think, beginning to understand that there's, there are gaps in their, under, their knowledge and they need to learn about structural literacy. They need to understand about the science of reading and start to adapt the way they teach. Now, and we're not blaming them for things they didn't know if they go on and take the learning leap. I, you know, I've spoken to many fabulous educators through this podcast that, you know, are like, you know, I've even spoken to reading recovery specialists or former reading recovery specialists who once they learned about the science, they did that deep dive that is essential yeah. and they've made significant difference. And I, I know one teacher that I totally admire and she's retired now. And in her retirement, she is doing absolutely everything she can to educate anyone who will listen on best practices for teaching reading and recognizing that these programs, when they were created, we didn't have the knowledge that we do today to know that it's harmful. Um, and, you know, per, I personally was a non-responder to reading recovery. Those are lessons that I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I can remember sitting in the library with this gentleman and getting so frustrated and that's never gone away. Yeah. And I'm not the only one yeah. who responder to reading recovery. There's actually quite a high percentage. And then when we look years later, we don't see the benefit. So now that we know this, we need to put it on the chopping block and say, until they make it so it's aligned with the science of reading and structured literacy, which they may well do. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it would take a, a complete reimagination and a, a lot of money to make it at a program we, where we have the evidence when there are other programs that do have evidence. And we see this with other prominent programs and even, you know, professors that created it gone on sabbatical and universities that supported these programs are stepping away recognizing yeah. that this is happening today, currently, right now, we need the school systems to say, okay, it's on fire. We know not to touch it. It's hot. We need to move away from it 
and go to what's best for our students. Recognizing that this isn't going to happen overnight, giving them that leeway to go and, you know, the research is saying this takes like about a five-year process to go from a balanced literacy to a fully structured literacy environment. Giving them that leeway and that learning is fine, but making sure those dyslexics that today are in those classrooms still get the support. They're looked after, yeah. And looked after as a parent. Um, as I mentioned earlier, my mom was huge dyslexia advocate, brought all this stuff to where I live 20 years ago, was talking to the, you know, the big people in charge and no changes were made. And the frustration that she feels, the frustration that I feel, because I spent many hours at the television stuffing envelopes with paper yeah. to try to get this information out there, to know that my children are still struggling yeah. for the exact same reason when it is preventable. Now, I happen to have children that are severely dyslexic. So even though they had early intervention and support and strengths, they still struggle. They still need that yeah. Continue to need that throughout their education. They will yeah. likely need to use assistive technology if they decide to go to post-secondary institutions. That's fine. I am a hundred percent fine if they need to have an e-reader. Recently, I was going through, uh, you know, my old files and whatever for Dyslexia Awareness Month, and I came across the the psychoeducational assessment that I had in, you know, within eighteen months of finishing high school, because in, in Canada, at least you need to have a psychoeducational assessment done within two years of graduating. If you want the additional support at, high, uh, at university and post-secondary institutions. Now I was reading at a grade eight level when I graduated and recognizing that at university, I needed to read at a higher level and understanding that I needed support doing so. So I was able to get the support. And, you know, one thing that we haven't really discussed yet when it comes to assistive technology and adaptations that are made for students that I, I personally feel is important to discuss when we're talking about literacy and individuals' dyslexia is recognizing that the strategies and the assistive technology available doesn't always work. Yeah. Recognizing that just because you give a student uh, an e-reader or a pen or something like that, just because they can be taught to use it does not mean that they're going to be comprehending what they're doing. Just because yeah. you give them a computer to type doesn't mean that it's going to work for them. Just because you teach them different infographics and they can use them doesn't mean that it's going to support their learning in a meaningful way. For example, personally, I can't use a e-reader in order to comprehend a text at the deepest level. Even though I am a very slow, painfully slow reader, I have to read through textbooks, read through journal articles myself. I need to take notes by hand. I am a far faster typer, but in order to have that deep level of comprehension, I need to do it myself recognizing that if I was forced to always use this strategy, then it wouldn't. Yeah. And I can personally remember in grade 10, I had a very well-meaning dyslexic teacher who decided that if it worked for him, it damn well was going to work for me. And realizing 
you know, it was very hard for him to understand that the strategy that he was using, Project Kinglet Lucio, uh, was not going to work for me. And that, that was difficult for him to understand. Sorry, my puppies just knocked out um, my screen. And recognizing that we needed to use methods that worked for me so that I could do well. And it could be, it is individual, isn't it? All, all, all dyslexics, all, all learners are, are individuals and we, we, um, we need to develop the strategies that work for, for us. Well, yeah, so it, it's, it's best when I, when I, I taught a lot of teenagers, um, the most effective way was to present them with several strategies and they would kind of find their own way and find the thing that works for them best. And moving on to talking about uh, older people with dyslexia, when they, they need accommodations because you never stop having dyslexia. So your the speed of reading, the, the uh, reading comprehension, uh, the the speed of writing, getting thoughts down into uh, typing thoughts down in, into writing. These are all things that are going to be slower. The processing of language is slower for children or for anyone with dyslexia. And that needs to be understood by the educators. One thing that um, didn't mention, he talked about not being able to to read or spell his own name when he was about seven years old, maybe seven or eight years old, mm -hmm. something like that. So after Pat homeschooled him, he uh, he went back uh, after after being taught, actually being taught to read. He went back to school at the top of top of his class, and before he became a teacher, he actually went to law school and graduated at the top of his class at law school. Now, it was really hard. We were quite determined, but he, he actually did that before he became a teacher. I just, I, I think being able to have a basic level of literacy, okay. reading and spelling, oh, is, is essential for an, anyone's self-esteem. Yes, it is essential yes. for self-esteem. Definitely. And recognizing that we need to do what we can to help build uh, the self-esteem and recognize that I know for me, I had a, a tile that was given to me when I was younger that says success is the best revenge. And it, it's one that I've made copies of for students <laughs> in dyslexia programs. And, you know, it's just that, you know, I need to understand that I have to work 10 times harder than anyone else in my classroom if they're not dyslexic and know that it's going to give me the strength to succeed. It's going to allow me to learn things that others haven't. So I have three siblings there there are four of us in the family four kids in the family two of us are dyslexic and two of us aren't and recognizing the difference in education is huge i mean non-dyslexic you know they're hard workers they're, they're great people um but my sibling that has dyslexia and i 
have approached things differently in life. And it's really funny because we've both chosen professions that tax our weakest areas significantly. Mm -hmm. yes. And knowing that that hard work does pay off and that we can do things to allow success even though it's an area of difficulty. When we have students that have dyslexia, have damage, we need to do damage control. Yes. We provide them with the support, not just the academic support, but yes. the social emotional support that they need, not to necessarily be able to undo the damage, but give them skills to cope with it. Because there is always going to be that scared little dyslexic child that feels stupid and a waste of someone's time. It often, it, it, well, from uh, from my experience, often that, that has to be done first or in conjunction with any type of instruction that you're giving. There's there the, the, those bits that you need to take into consideration right away, and then and then you really start to see the child grow, in, both in. Um, in the way they feel about themselves and their and their academic skills. Our dogs are getting restless as well. <laughs> table. Catherine, we're going to have to um, wrap up in a minute just to uh, so I can go and look after them. Of course. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I think we've definitely hit on some of the important points that are available when it comes to giving dyslexics the chance and the opportunity to succeed because they are brilliant minds that mm -hmm. if given the opportunity to succeed, the support to succeed can do amazing things. Yes. So Absolutely. thank you for joining me today and let, uh, I'm sure anyone listening can reach out to any one of us if they're wanting more information, your books, which are, you know, are great ones for kids to go through I once I finished reading them I handed to all of my kids so they could read them afterwards and you know they've got great images there's a new one that I don't have yet um sorry can you remind me of the title of that one isn't it improve your smelling oh it's, right uh, <laughs> so um, need to improve my smelling <laughs> <laughs> it's not very good <laughs> <laughs> it's all, all the rules of uh, reading and spelling um, that lots of teachers need to know and uh, that parents might find helpful as well. It's presented very simply. So it's kind of like a, even it's a, a fun illustrated kind of reference book that you can go back and look up particular. So you can, it would help with homework or yet yeah, those all of these teachers that we're talking about that didn't have the benefit of, the, of this kind of language teaching that may need to brush up on how how English works together. Yeah. It's just come out, so it's free um, at Nessie.com. As, as, as an ebook. E as an ebook. And the printed um, versions are hoping to get it on Amazon. I think they're just they're just about ready for yeah, they'll, they'll go up soon. Wonderful. Thank you.